Good afternoon. Happy Friday. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. It's been a long time since the Toronto Blue Jays played a game of baseball, it feels like. Two whole days off? Arden Swelling's going to look downright rested when I see him at the park later. Ben Nicholson-Smith was on the road, so maybe less so him. Jays are back in action tonight. The Cleveland Guardians are in town. 7.07 first pitch. Ben Wagner and Ben Nicholson-Smith on the call. I'll be down there with them during the game, giving you some updates, doing Jays talk post game. It's sitcom night, whatever that's going to mean. I don't know. Are friends and Seinfeld and them going to be there? I don't think so. We already know who's throwing up the first pitch. It's our pal Kelly McCormack from a league of their own, which is out today on Amazon. We talked to Kelly yesterday. If you missed that, go back and check that out in the Blue Jays Talk podcast feed. Uh, She's the coolest, and the show is very good, and it was a fun interview. She's going to throw out the first pitch. We also had Jada Lee on yesterday, the 16-year-old who's pitching for Team Newfoundland in the Canada game. She's throwing out a first pitch this weekend too. I don't know who the third person is throwing out the first pitch, But whoever that person is, you dropped the ball, not coming on Jay's Talk Plus. Because the rest of them did. And we got them all hyped up and ready for it. It's a pretty big weekend for the Blue Jays. Cleveland comes in at 59 and 52. Five in a row coming in here. That is a game and a half behind the Jays. But more importantly for Cleveland, that's at the top of the AL Central. When you look at the wild card race, you're looking at Toronto, Seattle, Tampa right now in the three spots. Baltimore only a half game out. Minnesota and Chicago within three games. And were Minnesota or Chicago to catch Cleveland, Cleveland would be right in the mix as well. You look around baseball and not a lot of these teams playing against each other this weekend. You've got Cleveland, Toronto. You've got Tampa Bay, Baltimore. But the rest of them are against teams that are more or less out of it. Houston's got Oakland. The Yankees have Boston. Seattle's got Texas. Minnesota has the Angels. The White Sox have Detroit. All that is to say, you'd favor every team that you're competing against for playoff positioning right now in their weekend series, whereas Tampa and Baltimore and Toronto and Cleveland are are pretty much dead even. The, The Jays are pretty notable favorites tonight as they have tended to be. There's still more market confidence in them uh, money-wise than there seems to be uh, on the fan base side, on the prediction side. But we'll see. The Jays decided not to juggle the front part of their rotation with the two days off. Jose Brios will start tonight. Mitch White will start tomorrow. And then Kevin Gosman will get the nod on Sunday. They could have flipped Gosman and White to try to make sure Gosman's a little closer to the front, maybe squeaks out one more start down the stretch. They opted not to. I still think we'll probably see Alec Manoa Monday instead of Tuesday, flip him with Yusei Kikuchi. That way Kikuchi's in a spot where if they need to skip someone, they can. Manoa would also still be pitching on a little extra rest in that scenario. That's something we're going to have to watch for as we go. I'm curious as to, I I don't know that we're going to, get too deep into the text line today. You can send your text to 59590. If you've got questions, if you've got comments heading into the weekend, I'm also a little curious with it being sitcom night, your favorite sports 
moment in a sitcom. It doesn't have to be a sports show. Otherwise, you know, Eastbound and Down or something like that is going to dominate or Friday or Friday Night Lights. Uh, but if there's a baseball moment, you know, like uh, Al Bundy hitting the big, well, I won't put any spoilers in there, um, but we'll see. We're also going to talk to Ben Clemens a little later. We're going to talk to Jim Rosenhaus of the Guardians radio broadcast. But first, from down at Rogers Center of the Sportsnet Radio Network on the Jays call, it's Ben Wagner. Ben, how are you, buddy? I'm awesome. How are you? Uh, not as awesome as you, but uh, I'm good. I'm feeling good. I'm in the studio right now. <laughs> I'll be down there with you in about two and a half hours, depending on what the subway is like. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to tonight. How about you? 48 hours off. Uh, you, I'm looking you really to... forward to tonight. Actually, the entire series, uh, with the way that the Guardians pitching is lined up, they're bringing some really good arms. This is a lineup that I got to witness early in the year with Cleveland that doesn't hit for a lot of power. It hits for a ton of dink and dunk and rally-style innings, so expect the ball to be put in play a lot. I'm looking to, I'm, I, I like action. I like things <laughs> that happen on the field. I like uh, big moments as they build and then can players capitalize in those given moments. So I'm really excited to see how the Blue Jays pitching staff, starting tonight with Jose Barrios, uh, one, how he can bounce back after another, uh, you know, less than less than stellar start for Jose and trying to figure out this up and down that he's had this year. But uh, I, I'm excited for this series overall. And much like the twin series, you know, it's two teams contending for a wild card and, and really pushing through the, the back end of this thing. And, and on the Cleveland side, it's not just the, you know, the, the high contact hitting approach. They also don't really walk anyone as a staff and they're not a high strikeout team. This, this franchise is just bucking the whole three true outcomes thing. They're like, no, we're going to be the balls in play uh, team. So it should be, should be pretty fun both ways. When you look at Cal Quantrill, Tristan McKenzie, Shane Bieber as the three starters the Jays are going to face here. Um, what do you what do you kind of look for the Jays to do differently or, or prepare for from a trio of starters who really don't give you the free pass? Yeah, you have to be aggressive. You have to go up there and have an approach and hunt a pitch. You know, you've everybody in the lineup has seen the three starters that are going to be coming at the Blue Jays in some capacity. And the good news is, yes, they don't they don't dilly-dally around. They're fine with contact. They throw a ton of strikes, and that plays into the Blue Jays' hands. So I think it starts with an approach and the game plan for the Blue Jays on how Bo Bichette expects to get pitched, how he's going to attack. I don't think you're going to see, and you know, people people kind of bristle when you do say, "Oh, don't work long at bats. Don't work long at bats," and you know, try to get the mistake. I don't. You may not have the mistake. The, the mistakes still happen, if they happen at all, in the strike zone. So you've got to be locked in on your on your pitch selection, your sequencing, how you prepare to be pitched that night, and three different kind of styles coming at the Blue Jays over the next weekend. Uh, I think that is going to play into part of what makes the Blue Jays very successful, and that's an aggressive style at the plate. So... Yeah, I'm with you on that, and I think you, you know, it, it kind of runs counter to some of what we've talked about with the Jays' offense over the year. Uh, but yeah, when the pitchers aren't going to throw you stuff outside the zone, you got to be, got to be ready to hit. So, on the other side of things, you mentioned Jose Brios. Before we get to Brios, I, I'm wonder if you're at all surprised that they didn't juggle the rotation order a little bit here, and we'll get Mitch White on Saturday and Kevin Gosman on Sunday. 
Uh, I think that is very much in conversation still. I don't think the Blue Jays oh, okay. are committed to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hazel, Just, um, Hazel had tweeted it out earlier. Is uh, is where I was pulling that from. Oh, interesting. Um, I recently checked in with somebody that a meeting still needs to happen okay. on the inside. And, but she is incredibly sourced. I, I certainly won't debunk that. She's incredibly sourced and connected. So if that's um, if that is the case, I got the feeling coming away from Baltimore, with the rainout and then the off day, that this gives the Blue Jays uh, more flexibility in this series head to head. And on top of that, uh, this is not a good matchup for Yusei Kikuchi. Mm-hmm. You know, this this is not a good matchup for Yusei Kikuchi whatsoever. So uh, he, he had lined up to pitch in this series, and I thought, okay, well, that would be one way that the Blue Jays can certainly disrupt, uh, you know, their rotation or uh, at least, you know, go with that. And Mitch White was very much a question mark coming into this series on Friday night, what the Blue Jays wanted to do. I know that. Then the rain up backed up Jose Barrios. And I heard Schneid say that before we left Baltimore as well. So, um, it, listen, if, if that's the way it stacks up, that's great. Um, we'll, we'll have to wait and see because we're going to have the clubhouse availability in 22 minutes. Yes, so I've got about 17 minutes left here to bug you before you run down there. Yeah. Uh, so we do know at least Jose Barrios is starting tonight. He had, If you're a believer in the splits, that's a big swing. Barrios going from a road start to a home start. Uh, I'm curious, though, because I've, I've tried to dig in on this stuff and find like a through line of why is he struggling so much on the road and not at home. Do you put much stock in that? Have you found something in Barrios's games that, you know, a light goes on? Oh, yeah, that's why he's better at home? Not home and road. Individual starts I look at, and I look at the stuff, and for me the stuff starts with the two-seam fastball. Is it getting life on it? Uh, everything seems to play off of that two-seamer results-wise and command of the strike zone. His fastball with the four-seamer is better when the two-seamer is better. The curveball certainly seems to have its up and downs, and I just look back at all of his starts, and I've seen every one. Hmm. Jose Barrios is better when he's got the two-seam fastball command when he can induce the contact that he wants, spot that pitch, and that's the pitch that everything else becomes better. The four-seamer elevated is better, and the curveball seems to be better when he's throwing it with a complementing two-seam fastball. For for me, that is the greatest separator, and it's a very early indicator for me with Jose Barrios and the kind of night we're going to have when the right-hander is on the mound. I've, I've pined around asking people in the pitching department uh, the coaches that are on the field that have absolute, uh, you know, deep dive into this from statistics, nobody can put a thumb on the wild home and road splits. Hmm. Nobody. Uh, and, and we were asking the same question in Baltimore when we were on the field. Uh, what was it, Wednesday night? No, Tuesday night in preparation for the for the start on Wednesday. And still, people were throwing their palms into the air. It's like, we, we can't figure the, the home and road stuff out. But... You know, when you when you take it back a, another peel on the onion, what makes the biggest difference, and and that is command of the strike zone and executing. And for me, that strike zone command starts with the two seam fastball. For sure, and and that does make me feel a little bit better that I went through all this stuff and couldn't find the the big blinking light either. If they can as well, then good. I didn't miss anything. Um, you know, he just doesn't <laughs> have that command on the road as often. Um, I'm curious as to your take. I. I totally with you on the two-seamer um, being kind of 
the, the head of the snake and where the head goes, the body goes. Over the course of the season, he's nudged toward, I think because he's throwing that two-seamer as a larger share of his overall fastballs, his curveballs now become his number one pitch by how frequently he throws it. Are you are you on board with that approach? Like like the, the curveball, you know, that's his best pitch statistically, um, but, you know, there's probably a risk of going too far that way over the fastball. Where, where are you on, on the curveball being kind of his number one right now? Uh, I, I like it as a as the secondary, right? Not being the primary. I like it as a weapon. Uh, I don't like it as... Now, you have to keep batters honest, too. You know, you've got to flip it over there a couple of times on first pitches. You've got to double up on it sometimes as well within a given at bat. Uh, I still like establishing which whichever way the Blue Jays decide to go at. You know, Cleveland tonight let's say, whichever way they decide to go at them, I, I like building off of that fastball command, four-seam, two-seam, whatever. Change-up, by the way, is is another separator for him, but with the left-handers, obviously, as a, as a much, much more significant impact pitch. But for me, I like planting the seed that the curveball is always available, not the one that you're going to see automatically. Because even if the tunneling lines up, with Jose Barrios and the fastball and where it's coming out with the curveball as the, you know this pitch that's going to be downing it on left-handed hitters, running away from right-handed hitters. I like planting that as the seed and something that the batter has to look out for, not rely on seeing in those starts. So Jose Barrios, obviously they would love for him to go deep into a game to, to give them a good start here. Whether he does or does not, one of the other benefits of this extra day off because of the rain out is that suddenly your overworked bullpen has had two days off in a row. Um, how, how big a relief is that if you're John Schneider and you're Pete Walker that you kind of, you enter what are a couple pretty big series here with Cleveland and then Baltimore and the Yankees with almost a reset bullpen in terms of fatigue. Huge, huge. Blue Jays needed to reset with it, and it's good news that it's that it happened. You know, Jimmy Garcia gets better with multiple days off, and and he was a little leaky the other night when we were in Baltimore. Uh, Adam Simber could use a blow. David Phelps certainly needs some time down, and with the loss of Tim Mesa, that's a significant impact to this bullpen. Uh, you can slice it righty lefty in availability, but Tim Mesa was was trending back to be a happier Tim Mesa on the mound with his fastball command, that two-seamer and the, and the slider that he features. That's a big loss. You know, th- thankfully, it's not going to be as a significant ding to the bullpen for the longevity. By the end of this week, he should be playing catch and really seeing how that shoulder is responding after being dislocated and that play at the plate in Minneapolis. But everything gets better for the Blue Jays if they can rest that bullpen and get consistent depth from their starting pitching. You don't have to go eight and nine innings. You know, the CGs just aren't going to happen anymore. But if you can certainly get six, that takes somebody out of the equation each and every day. And that's good news for the Blue Jays. And and we know who they are if you build it backwards. Jordan Romano's going to get the ninth. Looks like Jimmy Garcia now lines up for the eighth. A combination some way of Adam Simber, Zach Pop, uh, Trevor Richards somewhere in there to kind of bridge from the wherever the starters leave five six seven that always helps everybody because it gives john schneider to look at the lineup and when you can complete clean innings too 
not have to rush a guy in there to get out of a jam. This builds on the Blue Jays' benefit tremendously because they analyze opponents' rosters and lineups in three batter pockets. Like, all right, how does this guy line up? And if we have to make a mid-inning move against this guy, now he's got to face the next two. How does this pocket where you have to rely on somebody to make three three appearances within a given inning. Uh, how are you going to do that, and how are you going to attack it? So anytime the Blue Jays can spell their starters that extra frame and get it to the next frame in a clean standpoint, that helps the Blue Jays. Things get a little disruptive when you have to rush in and start to bridge innings and ask guys to do up-downs. Yeah, it's a pretty good opponent to highlight that, too, with uh, the Guardians coming in with seven righties, five lefties, and a switch hitter. Uh, They're very versatile in terms of making you think hard about your bullpen decisions, especially when you don't have a lefty in there. So um, that is something to watch for sure. Uh, One more for you, Ben, before I let you get down uh, underneath. Uh, Oh, and tiny update. Jay's Media just tweeted out that Matt Peacock has cleared waivers and been assigned to AAA Buffalo. Sure. Uh, not in the mix anytime soon uh, for the Blue Jays, I'm sure. On the hitting side, we talked a little bit about the approach you have to have here with Cleveland. I'm just curious how you found the kind of tweaked batting order with George Springer out and with the earlier changes where you're now seeing Lourdes Gurriel Jr. at the top most often, and Bo Bichette seems pretty settled in that number five hole. Are, are you liking what you're seeing from the way the lineup flows these days? I am. Honestly, I am. I like the fact that Lourdes right now is giving the Blue Jays quality at bats. And that was the biggest separator in decision-making when the spot opened up. And it looked like George was going to be out a significant chunk of time. And how do you address that number one spot? And they they went and they asked the guy who they feel is giving the, one of the best quality at bats and then can still be a threat when Later in a game, the eighth, the ninth inning, and you might need some contact ability or threat to come in. I know the home run totals aren't coming up for Lourdes Gurriel Jr. this year like they have in the past, but he is still a significant threat in this lineup to plug it alley, and he can run into one if there is a mistake at the same time. But the overall quality at bat is what is the biggest indicator and why I think he's going to lead off even more. Um, you know, Whitmerryfield has the speed. And if if you look at the Blue Jays and they, they can design that lineup, it's going to be either be in the tail end of it or right at the top of it. And that's the punch that you get with Gurriel or a Whit Merrifield. It's, it's a quality of bat, and they like, they like wits at bats overall. But for Gurriel to get the increase in leadoff time, that's a product of the number of pitches he's seeing, his swing decisions, his swing decisions, and the fact that he's able to do damage. And that is, that's huge right now for the Blue Jays, and they need that at the leadoff spot because you lose George Springer, and he's not a threat in the lineup or not even available to be in the lineup. Uh, you got to have somebody to plug that gap. And certainly, Lourdes, over the last now eight weeks, has been that guy. Now, if we could get the swing decisions to bleed over into the base running decisions, you'd have yourself a full-time leadoff hitter. Um, But take what you can get. Uh, Ben Wagner, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. I know you got to get down to John Schneider's pregame. I will see you in a little over two hours. Safe travels. Hope it goes soon for you, and uh, see you down here soon. All right. Uh, Ben Wagner, voice of the Blue Jays on the Sportsnet Radio Network. He'll be on the call all weekend with Ben Nicholson-Smith. First pitch tonight at 7.07 as Jose Barrios takes on Cal Quantrill. I'm glad that Ben said that even to talking to people around the Jays, the Barrios home road splits is a little, are a little perplexing. So he has, for a little background on this statistically, he's always had 
some home road splits, but a lot of pitchers do. It's not all that surprising. It's been really extreme this year. It was extreme in 2022, but that's like a 60 inning season. So I don't put a ton of stock into, into the data from that year. Um, this has been a big swing. So one of the things you maybe look for is control, but his walk rates the same at home and on the road. He gets way more strikeouts at home. So you start thinking, okay, well, it's got to be the movement of the stuff or, or the comfort level. Um, you can look into some of the batted ball stuff as well. And he's allowing double the rate of home runs on the road as he is at home. But that is purely a home run per fly ball thing. The, the ground ball profile doesn't change. The fly ball profile doesn't change. It just He just gets hit harder and more to the pull side. So why is that the case? It's hard to say. That's just, again, where it's only the results changing, not the inputs. Um, the other thing you could look at is that his strand rate is higher at home. So how often does he leave a runner on base? Some of that is sometimes credited to just kind of fortune or variance. Um, you know, if you ever hear someone talk about uh, a pitcher falling victim to sequencing, if you allow single, single home run, that's three runs. If you allow home run, single, single, that's one run. So that's a component of it. I also wonder if maybe there's an element of signals and pitch calm and things like that at home versus road. But if no one around the team is saying that, and you'd think that that's something they would be on top of and being, and look to remedy. So um, I had been asked about this one a couple times and the Minnesota start was kind of a smoking gun for me in that if he had these extreme home road splits for a reason that we could touch, that we could grab and we could extrapolate from, he should still pitch well in Minnesota because he spent most of his career there. Uh, that had that wasn't the case and hadn't been the case. So it feels weird two-thirds of the way into the season to be like, that's noise. But that's where I'm leaning. I, I would give you, you know, three quarters of a run of difference in your home and road ERA and be like, yeah, there's something there. But going from being a number two quality starter to being a DFA candidate when you leave the city of Toronto doesn't make a ton of sense to me. It actually reminds me of uh, a year Drew Hutchison had when he was here. It was his rookie year, 2012. He had a 2.36 ERA at home and a 6.47 ERA on the road. And I remember 2012, you know, I was just kind of starting out on the blog side and people didn't like when you said, well, Drew Hutchison's not very good um, because most of the indicators said Drew Hutchison wasn't very good. But he's so good at home and it's a, a hitter's ballpark. How can you succeed at home? And the truth was that we're, we were talking about a 58-inning sample. And that's enough sample for noise. Uh, as it turned out, Drew Hutchison did not have some magic formula for Roger Center. He would have a 473 ERA there. And then another season in 2015 where he was lights out at home and an absolute disaster on the road. And that one took place over like 150 innings. So maybe there's something there again. And then the next season it's gone. So Sometimes weird stuff happens in even fairly large samples. Maybe there's something Jose Brios is doing better at home, but if the Jays haven't found it two thirds of the way into the season, it's uh, it remains elusive.
if you're heading down to the park tonight, by the way, it's sitcom night at Rogers Center. Uh, a few texts have come in about people's uh, favorite baseball or softball uh, moments in sitcoms. Uh, someone said, Lindsay in Orangeville said WKRP playing softball. Uh, not a bad one there for sure. Uh, George running Bette Midler while Kramer is buying her Italian ice on Seinfeld. Uh, that's a good one, Maddie in Toronto. She was blocking the plate, as you say, just like Gary Sanchez. Um there's a, uh, okay, someone says uh, Milos and Jerry. I don't think that one ranks high enough, but that's a, a very quotable one. Uh, another vote for George laying out Bette Midler. Um, someone said that the part of the Jose Brios thing, then if it's, if we can't find an explanation, could be umpiring. I don't know that I believe that. Um, it's kind of a, you'd have to dig in on it pretty good, but the, the Jays um, overall have been almost an exactly league average team in terms of umpire calls correct and incorrect. This is based on ump scorecard with the data from baseball savant. Um, they are, 15th in average batter impact and 16th in average pitcher impact. So like they're the league median in both. Maybe it has disproportionately hurt Jose Barrios. I'll dig into that during the break and I'll come back to you. Whoever sent that one in, uh, make sure you uh, sign your text by the way, so I can shout you out. Uh, Matt in Toronto thinks it's just uh Barrios sleeping better in his own bed. Sure. Bring that bet on the road then, though, because you've got the manpower to do it. You've got the the logistical power to do it. Um, Luggy says uh, the Seinfeld-Keith Hernandez episode, another good one, the spit. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to get the Cleveland side of this series. We're going to talk to Jim Rosenhaus of the Guardians Radio Network on WTAM. Uh, they're here in Toronto. They're down at the park. We'll talk to the talk to him about uh, Cal Quantrill, who's starting tonight. Tristan McKenzie, who gets the nod tomorrow and is one of the most exciting young pitchers in baseball. Uh, we'll ask a little bit more about a few of the breakout Cleveland players this year, including Andres Jimenez. Uh, that's X with Jim Rosenhaus on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. The smartest takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Um, to get more of the Cleveland side, by the way, we have a Jays lineup. We'll get to that momentarily here. Um, but first, we're going to be joined by Jim Rosenhaus of the Guardians Radio Network. Uh, he calls Guardians games alongside Tom Hamilton, hosts Guardians Warm Up, Guardians Weekly on WTAM. He's here in Toronto. Jim, how are you? I'm, I'm doing well, Blake. Well, all right. Hold on. Wait. Who are the other two? You said one of three. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who, who are the other two? <laughs> I'll give it to Kid Cuddy, And then, uh, you know, there, there's a an emo punk band called Hawthorne Heights that's technically from Dayton. Uh, I know this is blasphemy, but this is a, a regular bit here is teasing the musicians from a city as guests come on. So it's not a serious answer, to be clear. No, that, that was fun right there. That was good. <laughs> uh, all right, Jim. Uh, well, welcome to Toronto. Um, pretty big series here. 
where is like, like what's the pulse of the Cleveland fan base and the team right now? Because I know there was some disappointment that they weren't more aggressive at the trade deadline and suddenly they've won five in a row and are kind of sitting in the driver's seat in the AL Central. Yeah, you know what? It, it's kind of been the story of the season because I think very similar to the off season where um, in terms of, of acquisitions, very slim um, compared to other teams. And even after the lockout, when a lot of teams are really active, um, the guardians stated they, they had a lot of young players that they wanted to find out about this year. And they found out about a, a lot of positives. So obviously it's worked out well and they're, they're in the hunt. But very similar at the trade deadline, I think, you know, there was a, certainly a segment that was disappointed that, that maybe more didn't happen. But again, it, it went back to, and this was from Chris Antonetti and, and the general manager, Mike Chernoff, um, they want these young players to continue to play. And they've been here all year and they've put together the record that they have with a very young group. And they talked about it with Terry Francona. You know, what, what do you think? And they just thought this group could get it done. I mean, obviously they'd, they'd love to add maybe in certain spots, but not at the expense of, of shaking things up for, for what they have, not only for this year, but uh, they really like what they have in the future years too. Yeah, it seems that way. And, and you know, this team is obviously very, very young and, and I want to get into some of the, um, some of the, the young pitchers with you, but it's a team that has a top 10 borderline top five farm system to complement all this stuff. So, um, you know, I can understand the, Hey, let's be competitive for the long term instead of pushing more chips in for just one year. When you look at how they stack up against the twins and white Sox the rest of the way, um, do you think that there is enough internally. Do you think that this very young pitching staff and a few, you know, key young position players uh, can get this done? And I know it's going to be close. So, so the, the answer is who knows, but um, yeah. How are you feeling about the guardians chances? You know, if, if you had asked that maybe two months ago, you would have said, well, at some point that, you know, both those other teams are going to get hot and, and if the Guardians can kind of hang around 500, that that probably would be a good season. But they've just continued to play better and better. Um, the starting pitching, which you know I, I think he- heading into the season was an area of the team they hung their hat on, was decent. But but with the lockout, they did some things in spring training that that made it challenging early in the season with the idea that they would be strong down the stretch. They didn't want to rush them with a shorter spring training. And then that probably had an adverse impact early on performance, but from the standpoint of health and where they are now, it really looks good. Um, so that's starting to, to become dominant. And these young players, every time they call up a young player and they've had 13 major league debuts this year, most of the time, these young players are contributing, and some have become critical. Um, Stephen Kwan, one, Oscar Gonzalez, another. Um, and I don't know that you could have predicted that uh, earlier in the season. So that's happening. And to circle back to what you asked and the way the Twins and White Sox have kind of just been okay, maybe not as good as, as they thought they would be, I think this team has as good a chance as any of the three. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you there. And I think one of the one of the big swing pieces, you mentioned a couple names there, especially Quan. Um, but another one is Jimenez, who I think coming into this year, everyone thought was ready for 
you know, an everyday role, but I don't know that anyone thought he was going to hit 300 and hit a bunch of home runs in addition to the base running and be an all-star. He's still only 23. If he, if this is who he is and he's going to be kind of a middle of the order guy for them, um, that kind of changes the timeline and changes what this core looks like in the near term. Does it not? Uh, it sure does. And, and they are top heavy. You mentioned the farm system. They are top heavy with middle infield prospects. Um, so the, I think to some extent heading into this season, they wanted to find out about him. And it's obviously, you know, a key piece in a trade uh, with the Mets. And yeah, I don't think they saw that last year. He had to go back to AAA. And, um, but you look at his age and, and you say, well, what's the rush? Um, he's still extremely young and, so they gave him a chance early in the season, and he has taken it and run with it. Um, just completely, uh, you know, he learned some things last year at AAA in terms of his approach at the plate. Last year, if, if, you know, he had a tough game or two, he'd start to tinker with the stance and all that kind of stuff. And He's really maintained what's worked well for him, even if he goes through a tough stretch. And defensively, he's been terrific. So it's it's been nice to see. Because, again, you, you hear about all these young prospects in the minor leagues, but they're not here. He's here doing it at an all-star level, and that's exciting. And it certainly has made a difference. And, and again, he's one of many who have, you know, in spring training, you were hoping that, that you'd see some good stuff. But I don't think, you know, anyone could have predicted an all-star season from him. No, it, it's been a blast. He's he's so much fun to watch, as a, as a number of these uh, younger guys are. Um, I want to ask you about some of these young pitchers, but first I've got to give credit where I think it's due personally. Uh, all these pitchers figuring it out. How nice an addition has Luke Maley been guided, helping Austin Hedges guide this young pitching staff? Uh, I know that he's a well-liked guy, and everyone's pretty excited when he had the couple big hits uh, the other night. Uh, that's a guy that you know the Toronto fan base got to know a little bit over over three seasons. How well has he fit with that young pitching staff? Perfectly. Um, you know, he and, and Hedges. There's not many veterans on this team, <laughs> no. but those two are. Those two are, and and. What a great spot to have your veterans because um, you want good defensive catchers who can handle a pitching staff, um, especially when that's your bread and butter. Uh, if you're going to hang your hat on good pitching, you need to have good catchers to call a game, block pitches, and the dirt control the running game. And both Maley and Hedges do that. Um, it's been a, a really good combination back there and, and certainly an asset that's helped the pitching staff get where I'd like to be. So we're going to see Cal Quantrill tonight, a guy who, you know, former first round pick took a little bit to get his footing under him a couple of years as a swing man. And now, you know, sub four ERA as a full-time starter, what has, what's he improved to get him to this level where he looks like a no question every fifth day guy now? You know, it's interesting. I've talked to him a couple of times because he probably has pitched better than his record, which, which is pretty good. Um, but he'll, he'll allow a home run in a key spot or, or have an inning that, you know, gets away from him a little bit. And, and he feels like he's throwing the ball extremely well. He feels great. Um, but sometimes that doesn't work out, uh, you know, in terms of, of performance and statistics and things like that. But it really has started to click in since the all-star break. Um, he's just trying to be aggressive. And, and you know, he's, he's all about getting the game deep you know, seven, eight innings if possible, um, which you don't see as much anymore in today's game. 
but that is his whole mindset and and he's okay pitching the contact and letting the defense do his thing especially when it keeps the pitch count down so he's got quality stuff he's not not afraid to throw strikes and that's added up to a real strong season for him I want to, you know, obviously the focus is on tonight's game, but but I do probably, I think probably Jays fans aren't as familiar with Tristan McKenzie, given that he's a little younger and this is, uh, you know, his second big chunk of a season. He has gone from a guy who really struggled with walks last year to a guy who barely, you know, similar to Bieber and similar to um, Quantrill just really doesn't give up the free pass and, and he hasn't lost the strikeout stuff with that, what what kind of clicked for Tristan McKenzie this year? Well, um, kind of what you said, he just got tired of walking people. <laughs> it's said, that easy, I'm eh? not going to do it. <laughs> well, he said, I'm, just, I'm not going to do it anymore because he was, you know, some of it was mechanical, but some of it was mindset. Um, you know, he made some mechanical adjustments when he went to AAA last year, but he said a lot of it was mindset and just believing in your stuff and, and not – being afraid to challenge hitters and, and he's given up some home runs this year no question probably because of that but his stuff is good enough where he can challenge hitters and throw strikes and he has done that consistently this season um it's interesting because you watch him and, and the overall velocity just the raw numbers they don't jump out at you but uh he has really good late movement on his pitches um probably a little bit deceptive and the way he mixes his pitches now with a really good slider and curveball uh, makes everything else stand out. So, um, yeah, I mean, it sounds simple, but he, he just got tired of walking people. <laughs> and he said, I can't do it anymore. And, and he figured out a way not to do that and still have success. Uh-huh. Um, all right. So one one more for you, and this is more future looking. I, I look at this rotation and you see the two guys we just talked about, Quantrill McKenzie, obviously Shane Bieber, Zach Plezak in there. That's four-fifths of your rotation, 27 and under. And then you've got Daniel Espino, who is the number 10 ranked prospect in all of baseball on MLB pipeline. I know he's only got a taste of double a this year and he's only 21. Um, but what is the feeling internally about him? He's struck out more than half the batters he faced this year. Uh, is that a guy who's going to join this young core sooner rather than later? Well, he won't right now because he's hurt. Mm-hmm. He's, he's been out a long time with a knee issue that they are being extremely cautious with, with him. Um, so I don't, he would not be ready this season if, right. that, if that's where you're headed with that. No, no. I was um, thinking more like they, end, they, of, they do. end of 2023, kind of this time next year, does he come up and give you a boost kind of thing? Com- completely depends on his health. Okay. Um, I think this year was a, a step back for him because of that, but they love the stuff. The things you mentioned um, is there's a reason he's where he's ranked prospect wise and things like that. His stuff is off the charts. His makeup is off the charts. So if they can get him healthy, then, then things could really move in a hurry for him. Yeah. Let's uh, let's hope he can stay healthy. I knew he had only started a couple of times. I didn't realize he was still out with that knee thing. So um, thank you for that. Uh, and, Oh no, only three or four or five good young guardians pitchers to talk about in the interim until he's, uh, until he's ready, depending on, I guess, how, how much faith you have in Aaron Savale. Um, Jim, thanks so much for taking the time out. I, I really appreciate it. Enjoy this weekend series. Should be a blast. Always fun to come up here to Toronto and uh, <laughs> looking forward to the weekend for sure. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Uh, Jim Rosenhouse, guardians radio network. 
Uh, he calls those games with Tom Hamilton, and he does Guardians warm-up and Guardians weekly on WTM in Cleveland. We got a few more texts in the text line. I, I made the mistake of putting out uh, something to do with TV and sports out there, and now there's a, a lot of uh, responses in the text line. Of course, a lot of Homer at the bat, a lot of Simpsons ones, um, plenty of Seinfeld as well. There are some non-TV questions in there as well. Uh, Chris from Mississauga says he's concerned about Manoa. The last couple starts, uh, his velocity and accuracy haven't felt like him. Uh, could he be injured? I don't know about injured. I think tired is maybe uh, an easier explanation and a, a closer one, one that we could at least assume or, or believe in without you know having to see the medicals. I, I do think... You know, this isn't always how it works, but when he got that comebacker off of him, if he was dealing with something else, maybe that would have been a good time to to get him an extra rest. Uh, but yeah, his numbers have gotten worse month by month this season. They're still really good. He's still a, a monster, and he's probably the guy you want in a big spot getting the ball. Uh, but yeah, it, it warrants monitoring, and it's why you see things like Ben Nicholson-Smith mentioning in a gamer that... Yeah, they're monitoring all this stuff. They're looking at the biometric stuff. Uh, they're keeping an eye on all of that. Uh, so you're probably not the only one concerned. AJ in Brampton asks, uh, if you're going to keep Bo in the fifth spot, even into late September in the playoffs, I don't know. Some of that is going to depend on how the guys around him are hitting. Um, you know, I, I think between Guriel, Kirk, Hernandez and whenever Springer comes back, you can find a one, three, and four in there. Springer's going to lead off if he's there. Guriel is a fine three hitter on non-Kirk days. Um, Hernandez really seems to have rounded out of it. And, and we're going to talk to Ben Clemens of Fangraphs in a bit here. Uh, he wrote a big piece on uh, Tay Oscar's kind of mid-season breakout earlier this week. Now, if one of those guys struggles and Bo's raking and you want to bump Bo back into the cleanup spot or even the three spot... I don't think there's anything that says you can't try it. It's just for now, while you have other options in those spots, generally you have five or six guys that you're pretty comfortable with. Um, you know, while it's working, don't uh, don't tweak it too much. Uh, Frankie from Keswick says, the best sitcom sports moment is always sunny when Frank wrestles as the trash man. Uh, Frankie, that is an excellent one. Shout out to the maniac, uh, the late Rowdy Roddy Piper. I would also say... Always Sunny gave us a terrific baseball moment in not only when they try to get in and try to sneak into the World Series, but um, doing the Wade Boggs challenge and then Charlie roping one and saying, that's baseball, baby. Uh, that is a heavily usable meme. So uh, Always Sunny always coming through as well. Um, Fred from Kirkfield says it gives us a different Seinfeld one. Uh, Kramer at the fantasy camp throwing a fantasy camp, rather throwing a brush back pitch. Uh, yeah, no shortage of good ones. Uh, sports are fun and sports are funny. Um, by the way, I'll just mention once more, we had Kelly McCormack on yesterday. Um, she plays the shortstop of the Rockford Peaches in the new A League of Their Own series that dropped today. Uh, go back in the podcast feed and check out that interview from yesterday. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and also make sure you check out that show. What we're going to check out right now is the Toronto Blue Jays lineup for tonight. We've got a couple minor updates as well. I mentioned that Matt Peacock has cleared out right waivers and been assigned to AAA. 
We also get the update that Gabrielle Moreno, who hasn't played in a week now, is dealing with thumb soreness. He did break his thumb in 2021, so something to monitor there. He's only doing batting practice right now. So he'll be out a little while longer, uh, I think. Could be a reason, as a couple people on Twitter pointed out, that Moreno's power hasn't been there this year if he's still dealing with that lingering thumb break from last year. Here's the Jays lineup. Doesn't include Gabriel Moreno. Uh, it includes some interesting names. Here's how they line up. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. leads off once again. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at DH. Alejandro Kirk catches Jose Brios. Teoscar Hernandez, Bo Bichette, Matt Chapman. That's the four, five, six you've come to know. Kevin Biggio hits seventh and plays first base. He's followed by Whit Merrifield at second base, which means center field is open for Jackie Bradley Jr.'s first start as a Blue Jay. Already uh, way ahead of Bradley Zimmer on the depth chart, apparently. Uh, that makes your bench for tonight. Uh, Zimmer, Espinal, Jansen, and Tapia. So an infielder, two outfielders, and a catcher. That's the way it's supposed to look. Uh, it hasn't always looked that way with the uh, wealth of outfielders the Blue Jays have right now. So th- those are the big notes. Um, BGO, Merrifield, Jackie Bradley Jr. being your bottom third at first, second, and center, respectively. It's not uh, the top six is all guys you're familiar with and trust. You see, though, how much the George Springer absence makes itself obvious when suddenly your eight, nine hitters have to stretch out over seven, eight, nine. And especially on a day that, well, Jansen has just not hit well the last month or so. Espinal has not hit well for a while and has really seen his playing time shrink. Um, You know, I I like the OBP profile for Biggio and Merrifield is a fine bottom of the order guy. Jackie Bradley Jr. We'll see if there's anything at all left in that bat. There's not a lot of evidence that he does, but we'll see. Uh, Daryl asks, reason why Vladdy is DHing and Espinal's on the bench. Didn't they just have two days off? Uh, yeah, but they're going to DH Vlad sometimes. And afternoon game, after a night game tomorrow, I don't know. This is just what you got to get used to with Vlad. They're going to DH him fairly regularly. He's playing first base enough that he's like, he's averaging five and a half games in the field out of every seven games. So it's not as if he's DHing half the time. He's playing first base enough that he's going to win the gold glove maybe. Um, and Espinal has just not been very good lately and I say that as someone who was very big on this being a Santiago Espinal breakout year I was a believer in the power early on I love his defense of course as everyone does Um, but his numbers on the season now are he's hitting 263 with just a 313 OBP and a 378 slugging when you have another option like Merrifield who can play a capable second base and you're trying to work him in regularly and then you also have Kevin Biggio around. Yeah, Espinal's going to lose some playing time. It's a, it's a thing that I think he has some control over. If he were hitting like he was in April, May, and June, he'd be in there every day. But he has. In July, he had a WRC plus of 68. And WRC plus, as a reminder, is a stat that takes into account a number of things like park factors and tries to put everyone on the same scale. 
And that suggests that Espinal for the month of July was about 32% below a league average hitter. In August, he hasn't played a lot, but that's down to 47. He really hasn't been the same player the last little bit that he was at the start of the season. So, um, Daryl, that's your Espinal explanation. The Vlad part of it is just Vlad's going to get Vlad's going to get some DH days. I, I don't know what more to say about it than that. It's just uh, it kind of is what it is, and especially with Springer out and the need to have Vlad's bat in the lineup absolutely every single day down the stretch. They're going to do that. And as a reminder, by the way, Vlad missed one game in 2021. He or in 2020, rather. No, he missed no games in 2020. He missed one game in 2021. And this will be his 110th game out of 111 for the Jays this year. Those random DH days are why Vladimir Guerrero Jr. leads baseball in games played over the last three seasons. It's part of the part of the plan to keep him on the field every day. No, not that first base is the most difficult position on the field, but you want his bat in the lineup every single day, no matter what. And he has played more baseball games than anyone the last three years. So I'm not going to question the Vlad DH days uh, nearly as much, even if he hits a little worse on them, even if you'd like to see him at first more often. It's only his 24th DH day of the season. It's not that huge a deal if it keeps him on the field every single game. Jose Brios is on the mound. Uh, as we get to the end of the show, we'll do as we always do. We'll break down the pitching matchup. Jose Brios against Cal Quantrill. We'll look for some opportunities for uh, Jays that could have a good showing. That might be a risk for a poor showing. See how Brios matches up against the Cleveland Guardians. First, though, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk to our pal Ben Clemens of Fangraphs, who loves Toronto Blue Jays fans so much, he's mentioning them in his chats regularly. And basically becoming a Toronto Blue Jays beat writer. His latest took a look at Teoscar Hernandez still being great, but in a different way. We'll talk to Ben Clemens about Teoscar Hernandez and his under-the-radar Blue Jays fandom uh, next on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Great daily gambling advice from J.D., Blake, and Ailish in the Fan Morning Show's Wake and Rake. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Our pal Arden Zwelling down at Rogers Center uh, provides a couple minor updates here. Uh, we knew already, but it's confirmed Ross Stripling making a rehab start for Buffalo at AAA tonight. Julian Merriweather is also going to throw an inning in that game. Nate Pearson is now throwing from 150 feet. Still no mound for him, though. Tim Mesa threw off a mound, but is unable to catch because his uh, non-throwing shoulder. And then George Springer is hitting off a tee. He's going to try throwing a little later. He's eligible to come off the IL on Monday, so it'll be interesting to hear uh, the updates on that side. Let's talk about some players who are in the lineup, and let's talk about it with Blue Jays superfan Ben Clemens of Fangraphs. Ben, how are you, buddy? 
I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, man. I, I saw you mention in your your chat this week the rabidity of the Blue Jays fan base um, when you write, when you come on these hits. Uh, what's your experience with Jays fans been like lately? Uh, I think they're great, and I feel like you don't notice as much when the Jays had like a, a bit of a down period recently, basically the early years of Vlad being up. Uh, I I feel like there's kind of a pent-up demand to like have this great team and follow it, and it certainly didn't help that the team was playing everywhere but Toronto for a <laughs> few years. But I I'm I always feel bad when I don't include like the Jays fan base among the best fan bases in baseball because they really are. And I think the question was about like what percentage of people within 100 miles of the town are fans. And when you look at it that way, I mean, I almost feel like it understates it because everywhere I go in Canada, uh, people are Jays fans. Hmm. But yeah, the, the Jays fan base is awesome. And I feel like they kind of get short shrift in the U.S. sometimes. I yeah, They're not here. I think people would agree with you and they'd be happy you said that. Um, it's also, I guess, I don't know if the numbers dictate this or just how interesting the Jays are, but you have written a lot of Jays stuff this year. It's why we keep having you on here. Um, is this just a fascinating team from an analysis standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. Um, basically, the more good hitters you have or the more people who are just strangely bad you have, <laughs> uh, the more I want to write about you. And the Jays are more of the good hitters side. There's not a lot of strange badness going on except for i think rios who we're going to talk about today <laughs> but uh yeah there's just a lot of people who are good in fun ways and so it's easy to write about them yeah it sure is and your latest at Fangraphs was about or your latest jay's piece of Fangraphs was about teoscar hernandez who big picture has a similar stat line to last year at least by things like wrc plus that that put him on the same scale uh, for league offensive environment. But what you found in diving in on Teoscar is that he's doing this in a fairly different way. What has stood out to you about Teoscar Hernandez's approach at the plate recently? So if you have a picture of him in your head from, I don't know, the last four years or so, he's just a slugger, right? Like plate discipline, eh, you know, he's, he's up there trying to hit the ball and he swings a lot. He swings early and often and it works. And this year, he is the single player in baseball who has toned down his first pitch swing rate the most. There's, mm. there's no one who's seen, who has 100 plate appearances even, like way fewer than the minimum, that has cut off their first pitch swings as much as he has. And it's even more interesting, for the first month of the season when he was going bad, it was unchanged. It was the same as 2021. It was the same as his career. And then sometime in like May maybe like early June, he just said, I'm just going to stop swinging so much at the first pitch. And since then, he's gone from swinging like, I don't know, almost half the time to swinging one in five first pitches, maybe even a little less. And it's a really big change. That's, you know, that's taking you from one of the most aggressive first pitch hitters in baseball to one of the least. And he did it fast. <laughs> and I mean, I don't know if it's going to keep, but since he's done that, he started striking out less. He's gotten better hitters counts. He's you know, he's getting more pitches to hit. He's obviously a great fastball hitter. And I think pitchers kind of thought they were getting away with getting up on him. And then, then they could just never throw him a fastball. And yeah, it's not like it's going to work like this forever, but he's gotten a way to get into either get into counts where he can hit more like on pitches he wants to, or if they really want to get a first strike over, they have to throw fastballs now more. So even though he's swinging less on first pitches, he's doing about as much damage in aggregate. He's actually, 
doing much better when he puts the ball in play. So he's almost never chasing anymore. So there's never any of these like off the end of the bat, flailing out of the zone kind of first pitch hits. If he's swinging first pitch, he's like basically sitting on a fastball now. I love that. Um, and yeah, some of the things you pointed out there, the kind of trickle down effects, he is walking a little bit more, but the strikeout rate going down is uh, the big thing for him, especially because he's generally historically been a, a pretty high batting average on balls in play guy. So the more he can put it in play, uh, great. It's uh, it's even more effective yeah. for him. Um, but really, this is about, you know, the the buzz term that around the Jays is swing decisions, right? And it's don't swing at a pitch just because it's a strike. Only swing at a pitch that, you know, you, you are, you can do something with and you don't think you'll get a better one in the plate appearance. So when we look at a guy like Teoscar, I mean, you mentioned that that no one else has done it, but like how... How rare is even a moderate change like this for a player? This is, it's not the biggest over the past five years that I've found, but it's in the top five. And it's not a perfect sample because I'm looking year over year and this year is not over yet. So maybe he'll, maybe he'll kind of change it up again and start swinging more aggressively because pitchers are now coming after him more often. Maybe pitchers will, you know, look at his last month of this and someone will say, oh, we've watched the tape, like you should be swinging. I, I don't really know where he'll ha- come out at the end, but this is hard to do. People don't do this. It's, it's hard to change your nature like this. And a lot of times what happens, this is more anecdotal than the fact that I can prove it with the numbers, but it <laughs> That's seems okay. to be true is that people will do it until they run bad for a few weeks, and then they'll switch back to their initial tendencies. So you start swinging less when you're in a rut because you're like, oh, I'll try something new. I'll just swing a lot less often and see if that works. And it works great, and you do it for a month, and then you run into another slump, and you stop doing it. I mean, we don't know if that's going to happen with him, but I don't think so. Like, I think he's done it long enough now, and it seems to be working well enough. And honestly, like you said, he, has, he does so well when he puts the ball in play that I think it's easy to see this as, this is just a way to get more pitches to put the ball in play on. Mm-hmm. And like, if you need to keep changing up what you do based on what pitchers are doing, yeah, sure. He'll probably start swinging again more if they decide, oh, this guy who we used to think was a swing at anybody, swing at anything type is now becoming judicious. Like if you look at Mike Trout as a good example, he never swung at anything on the first pitch. And then eventually uh, pitchers started coming after him just really right down the middle. And so then he started swinging again and he had like a three month period in 2016, 2017, something like that, where he swung at everything. And so they backed off. There's some cat and mouse to it, but this is hard to do. It's impressive that he's done it. Yeah, and I would think that that versatility of approach, the fact that you can do that, that you can have a you know 140 WRC plus in consecutive seasons, being that hyper aggressive guy, and then almost replicate that being a much more patient guy. I would think that makes you not immune, but less prone to the kind of slumps that, yeah, some guys have to kind of look in the mirror and revisit the approach. Well, if you're comfortable hitting both ways, then it's easier for you to play the, I don't know if you're the cat or the mouse in that situation, but it's easier for you to come out on the good side of the Tom and Jerry, I would think, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it really speaks to how strong his kind of carrying tools are. Like, no one's ever going to tell you that his carrying tool is knowing which pitches to swing at. It's how he's improved a lot at it, and he's never been terrible. But his, his real skill is just that he has so much power on contact 
And showing that he can kind of get to that, it's not a, it's clearly not a byproduct of approach because he can take two different approaches and still get to it. Yeah, it's a really good sign. It just gives him a lot more flexibility with how he wants to approach things. And that's important for hitters because pitchers have all kinds of flexibility, right? They, they throw a bunch of pitches. They can <laughs> pitch around you. They can not. They can go first pitch strike. They can go first pitch like breaking ball. If you have a little bit more range as a hitter, it's really helpful. And yeah, I, I don't know, like, it's amazing to me. I would not have listed him among the three or four Jays hitters I thought were the best coming into the year. And I'm kind of bumping him up the list now just because doing this in such a different style is very impressive. Yeah, and he's also done it in in big spots. I know there's the risk of chopping samples up even smaller, but um, in leverage spots, in runners and scoring position spots, he's been deadly. So even when, you know, a pitcher's, theoretically more locked in. Um, I want to talk to you about another Jay who has changed his approach. And it's another guy who, uh, Hey, good things happen when he puts the ball in play high batting average on balls and play guy for his career. And Lourdes Gurriel jr. Instead of, I, I mean, maybe you see something in the data that's similar to Teoscar, but the big change for him is he's gone from a power hitter or a power ish hitter, like a guy with 25 home run power to uh, basically his brother, where he's going to try to win the batting title. Uh, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. hitting 309 this year. What have you seen underlying Gurriel's kind of change in player type this year? So I think he's a really interesting case. So if you just look at the numbers, like you said, he looks completely different. And you also look at it and say, well, He's batting 366 when he puts the ball in play. That, that probably won't continue. So that's maybe a bad sign that he's going to be able to keep doing this. But there's opposite things that actually make me think he'll be able to continue a similar-ish approach, maybe not the same one. So here's something that you would say. He has not hit a lot of extra base hits this year. Like, right. That's just true. His isolated power is way down. But here's something that might surprise you. The way that you get extra base hits is basically hit the ball hard and in the air. That's, I don't know, there's, there's other stuff to it. It matters where you hit it, and is it at a fielder, and how hard, and how in the air. But generally speaking, if you hit the ball like 95 miles an hour or harder, that's hard, but you could break it down more specifically, but hard. And higher than a line drive, or like line drive at least, and lower than a pop-up, those batted balls are the best. And how you do on them varies a ton year over year. Like sometimes you just, you're topping everything a little bit too much, and it's too low, or sometimes you're just too under it, or... Your hardest hits happen to be at the wrong angle, et cetera, et cetera. But people who do that in a stable way tend to be really good, like extra base hit hitters, whether it's doubles or homers. And his ratio of that, like percentage of his batted balls that are hardened in the air, hasn't really budged. It's, it's down a little bit, but he's still hitting the ball really hard. One thing that seems to be kind of victimizing him this year a little bit is that his best contact has just been like lashed line drives. Mm. So he's still hitting the ball hard and like his maximum exit velocity the hardest he's hit a ball this year is basically in line with previous years. His hard hit rate is basically in line with previous years and it just hasn't quite turned into I mean, the technical stat cast term is barrels, but basically balls just hit blisteringly hard and at like a low fly ball or line drive, like the ones that become homers and doubles off the wall. Right. He's been just, just under, just over. And so that looks bad. But if you just think about, like, is, this, is he likely to come out of this? I would be a lot more worried if you'd seen a big change. Like, if he was just putting everything into the ground this year, he's not. Or if he had lost a lot of that, like, ability to generate hard contact, he's not. 
So I think there's room for him to kind of start getting a few less like lucky hits, like hits that get to the infield. He's had his fair share of those this year. <laughs> you don't bat 360 on balls in play if you haven't. And just make up for it with extra doubles and homers. I, I'm pleasantly surprised to look at the underlying because, like you, I looked at his stats and I thought, um, this, this doesn't feel great. Like, it's great that he's hitting for a high batting average, but I don't know if I trust him to keep doing that. But I actually think, if anything, what you're seeing in power is underselling what he's doing to the ball. He's, like, really close to being on top of it on a lot of pitches. And it, it's not a case where he's lost a step in any obvious way. He's still mostly the same hitter underneath. Like, I, I could imagine him being a little off and then not working too hard on fixing his timing because he's batting 309, like he said. <laughs> and it's really hard to tell a guy, like, hey, it's, it's awesome, but, like, let's work on your timing. Well, why? I'm batting, like, I'm batting 300. Yeah, so go away. I have a career-high uh, contact percentage, too. Like, I, I, when I swing, I can do whatever I want, it seems like. Um, but, yeah, it's, yeah. it's and that's great to hear because I do think, you know, obviously the not – baseball card stats, but we'll say Fangraph's landing page baseball card, you look at, oh, well, the batting average on balls in play is so high, the isolated power has gone down, and yeah, he has a career-high walk rate, but he still barely ever walks. Um, so it's good, right. to, it's good to see and hear that a lot of those underlying things that made him, you know, maybe not a monster home run threat, but a guy who profiles as a pretty big doubles threat uh, is still there underneath. So that's a couple guys we're optimistic about. We got to get a little pessimistic here. You're you're a Toronto fan favorite right now, but we got to talk about Jose Barrios and we got to see if we can figure this out. I spoke to Ben Wagner, the Blue Jays play-by-play radio voice earlier in the show. And he said he spoke to people around the Blue Jays and those conversations basically back up what I have found, which is that I can't find a through line for why Jose Barrios is so much better at home than on the road. And I know that, you know, things can be noisy even over two thirds of a season. Uh, but I wanted to ask you more generally first, before we get into Brios, when you see extreme home road splits with a pitcher, what is the kind of thing you're looking for uh, to explain it or, or validate that those are real? So a few things I'd look for are like command essentially. And just the size of the sample. Like, is it happening? Are they like, are the stats worse across the board? Is it just like, oh man, he's had a few rough starts. But generally speaking, what I like to do is just say, I will wait for a while to believe in this. I think that's usually a good uh, like view to take. One thing that's a big problem with figuring out home road splits is that guys really do just get off on the road. And, you know, they, they have the wrong routine they happen to have flown into that city the day before and be like a little jet lag. And so they're, they're feeling off and that actually matters a lot for pitchers, but it's not super predictive. Like you can't, you can't say, well, you know, that guy had a bad burrito for lunch before <laughs> his last start. And it's like, he'll probably do it again. People like he's obviously been a lot worse on the road, both this year and last year. And if you look at the numbers, you can see why he just doesn't strike anyone out on the road. He walks people at the exact same rate, like, like yeah. literally the exact same rate the tenth of a percentage point. And then he just doesn't strike anyone out. And I can't, basically I can't explain to myself why that would be the case. Right. It's not like he's a little bit everything. It's not like his Vila's down a ton or I, you keep looking at it. You, you splice things a little finer and cut them up. And he just 
for whatever reason, he doesn't get ahead of people. <laughs> and he doesn't strike him out when he's on the road. I, for the life of me, I can't figure it out. And, you know, I picked him to win the Cy Young this year. I'm, I'm feeling pretty <laughs> dumb about that at this point. <laughs> no, I think it's out of reach for him, unfortunately. Yeah, I do. Uh, I do agree with that, Ben. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, like he did at home. I, I might have a shot. I, I couldn't tell you what it is. It, it just makes very little sense to me. So when I mean, I, one thing you oh, could maybe ahead. see is if he said, "I don't feel comfortable on the road." Well, okay, like maybe that's a thing, but I don't know. Like you said, no one can figure it out. <laughs> no, I certainly couldn't. And when I went into the numbers, I kind of came away with the same thing as you. It was like, yeah, the strikeout rate's down. But even going through all the stat cast stuff at Baseball Savant, like I can't figure out why. Like the spin rates don't change enough. The velocity doesn't change enough. Um, even like some of the location stuff doesn't change enough because like you said, the walks are even. So basically where I came to this was I looked at kind of more league-wide macro stuff. And I was like, you know what? I would believe like if you told me, hey, Barrios is going to be about three quarters of a run of ERA worse on the road. Uh, when you go from 323 to 750, though, I'm not buying that. Now, where my biggest concern, though, is, Ben, and maybe you can help me with this, we could spin back positive, is I don't know if not believing the splits makes me confident he's going to be closer to the home version of himself on the road moving forward, or if he's going to be closer to the road version of himself at home moving forward. And those are two very different outcomes. Unfortunately, that is that is where I have been left as well, is I don't actually think he should strike out as many people as he does at home. It It's pretty remarkable to me that with his stuff, which is good but not great, that he does as well as he does. I think the real Jose Barrios is closer to the home numbers, but not the home numbers. He's he's not quite that good. I think it's something like a like a four ERA guy overall. You know, I'm this is like the second time in three years I picked him to win the Cy Young. I'm <laughs> clearly clearly I'm seeing something that's not there. I really want to believe that like his three pitch mix just looks to me like it should work. And his fastballs, you know, it's not it's not a world beater, but I think he's got pretty decent location on it. I, I like the way he uses the pitch, essentially. And it, it's hard enough. You know, it's, it's like an average velocity fastball that he commands pretty well. I I think what I keep seeing that hasn't happened is that I really wanted his ability to kind of shape the curve multiple ways and command it for, like, both a strike and just out of the zone. This is, like, too easy to just do a one-for-one -one comparison, but kind of like the way that Corbin Burns has – or Shane Bieber, those guys both, have kind of like multiple varieties of a similar breaking ball that they're able to manipulate a little bit. I was kind of hoping for that to be the case. And I mean, I haven't watched every one of various starts, but I haven't really seen that at all from him. It just kind of seems like he has the one mode for it. And I think he should be able to develop it. He's like really talented. And if you watched him through his time on the Twins and then in stretches on the Jays, he shows just really good. I mean, this is one of those stupid baseball terms, and I'm afraid that people will just ask me what I mean, and I won't be able to tell you. But he shows really good feel to pitch. Like, it seems like he has a great sense for how he can manipulate his pitches a little bit differently at times. And I kind of thought he'd be able to tap into that. You don't need to have really impressive off-the-chart stat cast numbers. The easiest way to generate a bunch of strikeouts is to have pretty good pitches and to generate a lot of chases with them by being able to keep hitters off balance. Like, it's nice to throw really hard and have tons of movement, and obviously I'd prefer if he could do that. <laughs> but I thought he had a good chance of 
like basically being able to pitch above his raw measurables because he seems like he has that that innate sense and he just hasn't been displaying it this year i feel like what kind of happens is that he throws a lot of very similar curveballs and if batters are capable of kind of laying off him he gets in bad counts and he kind of feels forced to throw his fastball not where he wants to and they just clobber it like this is this is not a good season for him just in terms of what happens when opposing batters hit the ball in his career before now he's kind of like average results on balls in play and then this year just it just like every time i watch him he's throwing a fastball like upper third but down the middle and it's just getting tattooed the numbers show out he's like eighth percentile in terms of what happens when opponents put the ball in play and he'd always been right around 50th before now so i don't know how to fix that it's one of these nebulous things where if i could if someone could tell you easily someone would have told him it's just <laughs> i don't know what it is and until he can kind of get back to being able to use a use one pitch in two ways we only have three pitches like this some of them need to have two purposes because he basically is a two-pitch pitcher to each side of the ball. You need one of them to serve a few purposes, and I don't think he's been able to do that well enough to get away with the kind of averageness of the stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, one of the – you seem like you, you don't have a – a tidy solution for it. And that's partly because he's been chasing different problems over the course of the year. One thing gets fixed. The curveball suddenly looks better and is getting a ton of whiffs. And then the fastball locations off, or then he tries the two seamer a lot more. And then, you know, they sit on it. it it's just been chasing a moving target a little bit. Uh, ben, we're running a little long with you here, but um, I open up fan graphs right now. And first of all, all of the articles are written by you. There's the like trending article section, and it's just Ben Clemens, Ben Clemens, Ben Clemens. Um, in addition to your piece on Teoscar, Teoscar Hernandez is changing plans, which I'd urge everyone to go check out. You wrote about the San Francisco Giants doing some nonsense defensively the other day. And I, our listenership probably doesn't care a ton about the Giants, but I am curious as to your take on this. We see... The Giants doing something like that. We see the Jays start the season as this incredibly aggressive shifting team. And then at least in the infield, ease off of it as the season goes. And then we also see league-wide batting average on balls in play has gone up each month. Do you think the league even needs to bother legislating shift stuff? Or is baseball going to find the right equilibrium on its own? Like you change one thing defensively and then the hitters change, and then the defense change, kind of that cat and mouse you were talking about with pitcher and hitter. I mean, I'm divided on this because I would just as soon change it. I don't see anything special about, like, putting a little zone behind second base that fielders can't stand in. It feels weird to me when, when you see a normal defense involve somebody standing right behind second base. That's just not how I grew up watching baseball. I, I'd be happy changing it just because, I don't actually know how much it's going to improve offense, but it will make the game look more like people expect it to. And, eh, you know, there's there's some benefit in that. Having all the people stand where they're used to is kind of nice. That said, it, like you said, it's going to be pretty marginal is my guess. I just don't think it's going to change the numbers. Like, everyone was very terrified that defense has suddenly figured things out at the beginning of this year. Because, like you said, the batting average on balls in play went way down, and that sounds bad. And it doesn't at all sound like something I want. But it's rebounded pretty strongly. And I find it hard to believe that it's something to do with, like, defenses figured out shifting in April and May, and then hitters just were able to catch up. I think that kind of what happened is a lot of teams were 
shifting very aggressively. And it was cold, and people hit the ball into their gloves. And, hey, it worked. And then as it started to heat up and the balls were coming faster and the shifts weren't working quite as well, teams said, oh, let's back off a little. I think there's a, a bit of very hard to disentangle chicken and egg there. I, I really don't mind what they do either way on this. I think there's other things that we'll notice more. Maybe the right thing to do is just say, let's require a really high bar and never change anything until the game is like really broken here. <laughs> but overall, batting average on ball to play has declined a lot in the last 10 years. And that's despite the fact that you, know, you can watch baseball. The balls are not getting hit more softly than they used to be. Maybe maybe the grounders are more pulled than they used to be, and that makes it a little bit easier to defend. But I, I just find it too hard to get too worked up about this. Is anyone really like willing to lay it all on the line in defense of putting your second baseman behind second base? No. It's just like, why are people so pro-shift? Here's they here's the easy it. solution. Right. Okay. More Lourdes Gurriel's, more Teoscar Hernandez's. Guys hitting like 330, 340, 350 on balls and play. A line drive will fix everything. It doesn't really matter how you shift against line drives. Your guy's either there or he's not. He's not, being able, to, he's not able to take one step either way. So. Yeah. Show me yeah, the guy no catching a ball 11 feet in the air as it lands in the, you know, 200 feet from home plate. Um, ben Clemens, I've kept you long enough, man. I'm sure you have some Kung Pao chickpeas or something like that to get ready for dinner. Uh, thanks for taking the time, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Blake. Uh, ben Clemens of Fangraphs. Uh, he is Fangraphs. I know they have other writers, but that trending section, all Ben Clemens lately, uh, he's the best. And please go check out that Teoscar piece because it's really fascinating how Teoscar midseason has just changed what he's doing at the plate and been just as successful as ever, maybe even a little more successful of late. Teoscar, by the way, in that cleanup spot today, as you'd expect, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll give you the Guardians lineup. We'll take a look at the Jose Barrios-Cal Quantrill matchup. And we'll see uh, who might be in for a big night or at least a decent night against a guy like Cal Quantrill, who the Toronto Blue Jays haven't faced since 2019. Uh, that's X on Jays Talk Plus on Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Everything you need to know about the Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is a little Ohio output right there as the Jays get ready to play Cleveland. If that rubs you wrong, well, just wait until you find out who took batting practice with the Blue Jays today and is hanging around with Alec Manoa catching up before the game. Mitch Marner. Uh, I don't know. The swing looked all right, but you're trying to get Leafs cooties all over the Jays as they push for a playoff spot. I don't know, especially with a three game first round. Surprised also that uh, he's there and not thrown out the first pitch. Obviously our pal Kelly McCormack is thrown out the first pitch. There's also more Leafs there. I just can't make them out from the pictures. Very curious what the conversation between Mark Shapiro and Mitch Marner is like, um, couple updates that we mentioned earlier in the show that we'll just repeat for you here in case you missed them. Ross Stripling starting 
for AAA Buffalo tonight. The hope is that he'll go five innings, could rejoin the rotation as soon as next week. Matt Peacock cleared waivers off the AAA. George Springer has been hitting a little bit. He's going to try throwing today. He's eligible to come off the IL on Monday. Doesn't seem like he's too, too far away. But we'll see. You never know with that kind of thing until he's back out there. Tim Mays has been thrown off a mound. He can't catch because of his injured non-throwing shoulder. But he can throw, which is good. Uh, Julian Merriweather, as he works his way back from that oblique injury, has had some pretty good numbers in the minors. He's gonna he's expected to pitch an inning at AAA today as well. So that Buffalo Bison's box score will be worth keeping an eye on. Nate Pearson is throwing from 150 feet, not from a mound yet, down at the uh, player development complex in Dunedin. If you are still hoping on Nate Pearson this year, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you at this point. Uh, I don't think that that is in the cards for this year. I'd be surprised at this rate. Julian Merriweather, though, maybe. Taylor Sosedo has been pitching well in the minors, too. Uh, he's on the 60-day IL also. So we'll see. Maybe there are reinforcements coming, at least in the form of a couple extra September arms. Gabriel Moreno was the other update. He hasn't played in a week as he deals with thumb soreness. He's hitting right now. Um, we didn't get a note on specifically which thumb, but if it is the thumb he broke last year, it would certainly explain where some of the power is gone and why they're sitting him down for extended rest. Definitely worth keeping an eye on. As is, uh, you know, his return to play because he was someone that we thought could potentially get in the mix for the Jays down the stretch once it stops being about development and it uh, is about winning every ball game you can. The Jays need to win some ball games big time. They're still holding on to the top wild card spot at 60 and 50. But the Mariners are only a half game back and they've got Texas this weekend. Tampa Bay and Baltimore are two and two and a half games back of Toronto, respectively. They're against each other this weekend. So ideal scenario for the Jays is that that series goes 2-1 in some order. Um, maybe you prefer 3 nothing. That way the team below the cutoff just gets further behind. Um, but I think it's early enough that you just want many teams doing mediocrely instead of uh, dropping off. Uh, entirely and strengthening one of your competitors. Minnesota and the White Sox are also on the periphery of this race, not far off at all. Minnesota's got the Angels. The White Sox have the Tigers. They'll be they'll both be looking to do pretty well against those opponents this weekend. And then, of course, Toronto has Cleveland. Cleveland currently leads the AL Central at 59 and 52. Were they to fall out of that spot, that would be a game and a half back of the Jays as well. So pretty big series for Cleveland from a divisional perspective, pretty big series for the Blue Jays from a wild card insulation perspective. Here are the pitching matchups, at least as Hazel May reported them earlier. Um, ben Wagner mentioned that there, this could still be in flux, but right now it looks like it's Jose Barrios against Cal Quantrill tonight, Mitch White against Tristan McKenzie tomorrow, and then what a showdown. Kevin Gosman against Shane Bieber at 137 on Sunday. Ace battle. That could be a lot of fun. 
tonight's game, Barrios against Quantrill. Let's let's take a look at how these pitchers match up. Cal Quantrill, you're probably familiar with. If you're a Jays fan that doesn't watch a lot of out-of-market baseball, maybe you're not. Quantrill hasn't faced the Jays since 2019. Here's the book on him. He's a 27-year-old righty, former first-round pick. Uh, he was always a guy that became pretty good in out-of-the-park baseball, so I've always I've long thought he would eventually figure it out in real life. He's sporting a 388 ERA right now. The underlying metrics don't think he's that good. They have him around four and a half. That's based on the stat cast data, based on his walk and strikeout and home run rates. The problem with Quantrill is he really doesn't miss bats. 15% strikeout rate, only an 8% swinging strike rate. That is in the seventh percentile. So the bottom 7% of pitchers in terms of getting whiffs. Now, he does have a really strong chase rate. So what that means is he's able to get guys to swing at pitches outside of the zone. He just doesn't get swing and miss a lot. Now, what type of pitcher might suit that? Well, one is a guy who stays tight to the edges. And so you're swinging a lot more at pitches out of the zone because you can't be sure they're out of the zone. That's part of it with Quantrill. He doesn't really walk many guys. So the command is pretty good there. The other is that it's just not that they're not that great of pitches and you can do something with them even if they're on the edges. And there's an element of that with Quantrill too. There's a 93 mile an hour fastball with some sink to it about 45% of the time. Despite that being more of a sinking action fastball, he keeps it up in the zone. It doesn't miss bats. It produces okay contact numbers. Nothing crazy favorable, nothing crazy unfavorable. It's just kind of a volume pitch, which is a weird thing to say about a fastball. Especially one that is a sinker up in the zone a lot of the time. Uh, He'll complement that with a cutter that he throws 37% of the time. The average location on that cutter is like middle-middle, which is strange. You'd think that would get hit pretty hard, but it has a decent whiff rate, and a lot of that is because it looks like the sinker coming out of his hands. You hear things like tunneling, disguising the ball, disguising the pitch. Those pitches look pretty similar as he releases them. Again, if you can make contact with the cutter, like with the fastball, you can do pretty well against it. It's just a a little bit more of a swing and miss pitch. Against lefties, he'll throw a changeup that has been hit pretty hard. Um, Or sorry, it hasn't been hit pretty hard, rather. Uh, And it's his best swing and miss pitch at about 26%. So that's a good changeup against lefties to to neutralize that platoon advantage. Um, And then he'll also throw a standard four-seamer and a curveball in small amounts. Both of those have been hammered. I guess at the percentage he throws them, you can't wait on them or sit on them. There's a good chance you don't get one in a plate appearance. But he doesn't throw those very well. They get hammered when they come in. So it's a lot of sinker up, cutter, low middle. And it's on you to figure out which is which. And then against lefties, he'll drop that change up in there pretty regularly. The Jays have not faced Quantrill a lot. I mentioned he's only faced the Jays once back in 2019. The Jays as a team have 41 plate appearances against him, but almost all of that is guys who are new to the team this year. For example, Whit Merrifield, one for 16 with a pair of walks against Quantrill. 
So he makes up almost half the sample. So when you look at Quantrill having pretty good numbers against the active Jays today, a 158 batting average and a 230 expected ERA based on walks and strikeouts and quality of contact, half of that is coming from Whit Merrifield. Everyone else has kind of small samples, a lot of out-of-division samples, a lot of older samples. Guys like Vlad and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. Um, faced him years ago. It's not even it's not the same pitcher at this point. So not a lot of fidelity in the batter pitcher sample, except for Whit Merrifield being maybe a slight surprise being in the lineup today. Here's how the Jays will line up against Cal Quantrill. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. leads off. We just had a great conversation with Ben Clemens of Fangraphs that included some talk about Lourdes Gurriel's uptick in average and the fact that some of the underlying stuff suggests more powers ahead because he hasn't changed much from a power perspective and a quality of contact perspective from who he was last year. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hits second, gets a DH day. A couple people in the text line and on Twitter worried about Vlad getting another DH day. I'm not as concerned. This guy's played more games than anyone in baseball the last three years. It's only his 24th DH day of the season. There's an afternoon game tomorrow. Until we hear something or see something, I'm going to imagine this is just part of a larger maintenance thing, and they probably looked at two days off, and we're like, yeah, this is a, a, even an extended break, uh, extended rest. Keeps his bat in the lineup all the time. So Vlad hit second as DH. Alejandro Kirk will catch Jose Brios and hit third. Teoscar Hernandez, who we also talked to Ben Clemens about and who just no longer swings at the first pitch. And if he does, it's because he's got something he's going to drive. A fascinating article over at Fangraphs on Teoscar Hernandez. He hits cleanup. Bobachette's still in the fifth spot. Matt Chapman. Kevin Biggio gets the nod at first base and hits seventh to give a, a little lefty look against Cal Quantrill. Again, lefties can look forward to that changeup a lot more often. Quantrill's pretty split neutral. So maybe not a huge edge for Biggio in that one. Whit Merrifield will play second and hit eighth. Got some questions about why Santiago Espinal's playing time has decreased of late. Part of that is you just you get Merrifield. Biggio had been decent for a little bit. But Santiago Espinal's numbers since the start of July are not very strong. And a lot of that is pitchers are working him outside, outside, outside. And he hasn't shown an ability yet to turn that into more than flares. So we'll see how that progresses. But for today, Whit Merrifield is in at second base and hits eighth. And then hitting ninth is Jackie Bradley Jr. making his first start as a Blue Jay. He'll play center field. So your bench then is Zimmer, Jansen, Espinal, and Tapia. One other small update, by the way. Yosef Zulueta has been placed on the IL at AA New Hampshire with right knee inflammation. He's also been dealing with shoulder soreness, according to Sam Dykstra of MLB. Zulueta had ACL surgery last year. He only threw like one pitch. Came back from Tommy John immediately tore his ACL. He'd been pitching very well in the minors, and they moved him to the bullpen in part to manage his workload, but in part because maybe he could help down the stretch in a bullpen rule. They have to make a Rule 5 decision on him this winter, 
So he's a little, there's a little bit more urgency to his timeline. So that's worth monitoring uh, as he hits the aisle with knee inflammation and shoulder soreness. Question the text line from Zoobs in the region says, uh, sorry, there is someone uh, who sent a text that I just do not understand. Um, if you're a 587 number, I'm sorry. I don't know what that says or is supposed to say. Um, Zoobs in the region asks, uh, does a Ken Giles flyer work for me? The Mariners designated Ken Giles for assignment earlier. Old friend, Ken Giles. He was uh, there for three and two-thirds innings in 2020 and then a really, really effective 2019 season as a Blue Jay, 187 ERA that year. I mean, it's probably worth at least kicking the tires on him and see what he can do. You'd probably hope to get him on a deal that allows him to work out some things in the minors. He'd pitched 14 games in the minors this year um, for Seattle as he worked his way back. Those were not particularly effective. You don't really care about the results on a minor league assignment. Um, But once he came up, he pitched four and a third innings over five appearances, had an ERA of zero, but walked... What do you walk? Four guys in four and a third innings to six strikeouts. Not great. There are worse things you could try than seeing if Ken Giles, like Sergio Romo before him, can give you anything. The velocity was at least back up to 95 when he was in Seattle, not quite the 97 he threw before. Um, this is one where if he were willing to sign a minor league deal first and spend a couple appearances in AAA, then with a, a quick call me up or I'm out kind of scenario. I would like to kick the tires on it in terms of replacing someone currently in the bullpen. I'd probably be fine with that too. Actually, when you look at the Trent Thornton's of the world, um, the issue would probably be the 40 man, which is going to have a bit of a crunch. If Julian Merriweather and Taylor Sacedo uh, continue getting closer to returns as uh, the latest reports have them. All right, let's look at the Cleveland side of this. Let's see how the Guardians are lining up against Jose Barrios. They'll go Steve Kwan, Stephen Kwan leading off, Ahmed Rosario, Jose Ramirez, Canadian Josh Naylor, Andre Jimenez, Oscar Gonzalez, Nolan Jones, Austin Hedges, and Will Benson. I'm very upset that Luke Maley is not getting the start. I imagine that means he's getting the start tomorrow. I wanted a Luke Maley game. This is... Unfair. No good. That's how the Guardians line up. They've been about an average offense on the season, uh, a tiny bit better lately. As our pal Jim Rosenhaus told us earlier, a little top heavy to that. Though once you get down past Jimenez in the order, it's not quite as uh, terrifying. But if you look at the top, that's that's a good it's a good group there. They're young, and they're only going to keep getting better. Probably. Not everyone develops linear in linear fashion. Um, so that's how they'll line up against Jose Barrios. Here's what you're looking at from Barrios. Which one is going to show up? He's a 519 ERA on the season. 13 of his 22 starts have been average or better using baseball references game score. But what that means is that the other ones have been really, really bad if he's still got a 519 ERA. Similar to Quantrill, he doesn't walk a lot of guys and has a high chase rate without a lot of swing and miss. 
he's better in those regards than Quantrill. He has a higher chase rate and a higher whiff percentage, but still not a lot of swing, swing and miss on the year. We talked to Ben Clemens and Ben Wagner about the home away splits, and we dug into the numbers a little bit more, and no one can seem to find a through line of why he's struggling as much on the road as he is versus succeeding at home. So keep an eye on that tonight. Maybe he's going to pitch worse at home moving forward. Hopefully he's going to pitch better on the road moving forward. His curveball is now his number one pitch by volume. Uh, it comes in at about 32% of the time. It's got a 32% swing and miss rate and opponents are hitting just 158 against it. It's his best pitch. It's not even close. His fastball, his standard four seamer has been a disaster. 367 average against 640 slugging against. And it's why he's moved more and more toward throwing his two seamer or sinker, depending on how you want to classify it. Statcast calls it a sinker. I believe Barrios calls it a two seamer does have a high contact rate, but not nearly the damage done to it that his four-seamer has. Um, and he's actually thrown it more than the four-seamer since the start of July. He'll also throw a changeup that he's using more against lefties than he was before. The Guardians have faced him for 77 plate appearances, expected ERA of 520, and only a 9% strikeout rate. Not a good track record of Barrios against the Guardians in a small-ish sample. A lot of that sample is Jose Ramirez. Uh, eight for 42, three strikeouts, three walks, a 243 weighted on base average. So Ramirez hasn't had a good time against Barrios. Everyone else has kind of chipped together good small samples. That includes Naylor, the Canadian, and Stephen Kwan, who homered off of him last time. All this analysis is to say that it's a mixed bag tonight. There's a lot that can go either way in terms of the Jays against Quantrill, because on paper, that's a guy they should be able to do good things against. But they haven't always done that against pitchers like Quantrill this year. It's been a little frustrating. And then on the Brio side, this is a team that he should be able to, you know, attack. It's a, it's not a high power team. It's a high contact team. It should play into what Barrios does well with a strong infield defense behind him, but that hasn't really mattered in Jose Barrios' starts. This team's a bit of a enigma on both sides. This game gets going at 7.07. It's first pitch, Ben Wagner and Ben Nicholson-Smith with you for the call on the Sportsnet Radio Network with me, uh, hanging in with them in the booth. I'm going to do some in-game updates, and then I've got Jay's talk post-game. So keep that 590-590 number handy for the text line. I'll tweet out and mention the numbers you can call into a little later on. We'll do Jay's talk for, I'd say, probably about an hour. It depends when the game ends and how tired I am. But uh, we'll do Jay's talk with you post-game. And then Jay's talk plus will be back, as it always is, uh, Monday at 3. So I want to say thank you. It's been a really fun week, um, even though there weren't a lot of baseball games. So big thanks to producer JR. Um, thanks to Derek and Connor behind the glass as well. Uh, a lot of fun guests throughout the week. Uh, thank you to Ben Wagner for taking the time out today. Jim Rosenhaus from the Guardian side, our pal Ben Clemens at Fangraphs, and all of you. It's been a, a bonkers week for engagement with the show on Twitter and in the text line. Uh, some of that was me baiting it with, Hey, what are you most concerned about? But a lot of it's been fun talk about what's going to be a pretty intense playoff race here. The Jays enter the weekend in the top wildcard spot with a two game, two and a half game playoff cushion, but the guardians aren't far behind. 
They lead the AL Central, and they come in with Cal Quantrill, Tristan McKenzie, and Shane Bieber. It's going to be a heck of a series. It's sitcom night down at Rogers Center. Hope you all have a wonderful weekend, and uh, if you're down at the game, turn up to the uh, Sports F590 booth. Give me and the Bens a wave. Have a great weekend, everyone. Jay's Talk Plus returns Monday. I'm Blake Murphy on Sports F590, The Fan.